0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Veterans Care Association and Timor Awakening podcast. The Timor Awakening program is an 11-day immersive, holistic and peer-to-peer veterans program based in East Timor that has a singular vision, which is to promote the health and well-being of veterans and veterans families. Due to the current restrictions from COVID-19, we are running slightly abridged programs on the Gold Coast uh, with the same vision and same aim. We're using these opportunities to sit down with our participants one-on-one and conduct podcast interviews to capture their story and their lessons learned and things that we can all learn from uh, as we as veterans and wounded healers move through our own journey and help others do the same. We're going to be covering a whole range of topics including defence transition, mental health, relationships, veteran suicide, PTSD and post-traumatic growth.
1: Where I did find some of the challenges of being a female was on promotion courses, especially where it's your all-call courses so it was certainly made very clear on my subject one for corporal course why would they waste spaces by putting females on it so I just to be honest quite bluntly told them if it wasn't for females being able to support those cause they would be the ones having to sit behind a desk some of the times or cooking the food or doing other activities which they didn't take too too much but again as people matured with their own life experiences and experiences in the army I did find that they did improve with their attitudes, so yeah.
2: that was my um, my experience. Okay, my name's Rowena. Um, so nine years in the air force, I did find that through training. I, I don't. I think the air force was slightly different, maybe to the uh, certainly to the army. I'm not sure about the navy. I experienced both of those things, but not as intensely. And in fact, there was seemed to be more male support. Uh, it felt that certainly the mustering's where you had designated so uh, the musterings that I went into seemed to seem to have more females in one certainly back then in the 80s so I didn't really come across chauvinism or anything like that so I don't know whether that was because of the mustering that I went into whether it was because it was everybody seemed to be um, on an equal footing because of the mustering that you went into, so I'm uh, I'm probably a little bit different from that kind of thing. Certainly not to say that it didn't happen, but again, more on training courses and things like that. Yeah. So yeah. exercises. That's when that's when there was a difference in you were a woman. You probably couldn't do that, uh, so you did have to prove yourself a little bit more, i.e., on the range, so you could go out there and yeah. and shoot better and do things better than than some of the men. And then they'd either respect you or they'd either. Um, make your life a little bit difficult yeah well see I joined the Navy as a 17 year old so I was a little bit naive but also um, I had to grow up quite quickly so I found it uh, actually quite mixed I had you know I had a lot of support but then again I also had that pressure that I had to be like have a tough exterior I had to you know you know if people like people sort of, how do I put it, um, expected of things of you and you, you had to just do it. Like there was no questions asked or anything like that or um, if they spoke to you in a certain way, you just had to take that. So especially as 17, you, know, you kind of, you do, you, you get really, really tough quickly.
3: Candace, I'm wondering if I can share a story that really stands out for me. I uh, recalled and it was when I was probably 22 and I was stationed up at One Basby which became One Sisby in the Northern Territory and we went on a road trip and one of the uh, orders was not to park the vehicles not to stop in towns mm-hmm. anyway as you can imagine going from the, the Townsville through to Darwin it's a very very long trip and Um, There's not too many towns, and in my definition of a town is, is, you know, a city, not a um, a one petrol station sort of um, small, uh, a few gatherings, uh, but that that was a town in the major's uh, mind. And anyway, so I pulled over my packet of vehicles in that um, very, very small town so that I could um, have a rest stop because there was a toilet facility there. And I crossed the road to go to the toilet. All well, my um, the medics did as well. And uh, and sure enough, this uh, major came by and in his uh, in his vehicle. And he pulled over and he said, "What the hell do you think you're doing?" And I said, "Oh, I've just uh, pulled over so that we can have a stop, uh, the toilet stop, sir." And he was extremely rude and he just uh, yelled at me. And he said, how dare you break orders? You weren't allowed to stop in the middle of, in the town. Um, you, and and it just went on for quite some time, this beration yeah. of me. And, uh, and he was senior and, and uh, you know, intimidating, extremely intimidating, you know, get back in your vehicle and all this sort of um, uh, just uncalled for tone and language. Anyway, I got back into the vehicle thinking I'd done the worst thing in the whole entire world and uh, at uh, the end of the day he called me up in front of the entire company uh, and he said I want to get everyone to look here come up this way Lieutenant Jackman I'm going to tell everyone exactly what you did and he berated me in front of it had to be over 100 people. Oh my lord, and he step. He was within one meter, which would be unacceptable in COVID times. Let me tell you, yeah. <laughs> and I could feel the spittle of his yeah. um, as he was expressing his anger at me, and I couldn't say anything because I was a junior, I was a lieutenant. Yeah, he was a major, and uh, he was at me, and he. As you can imagine, these these um, majors, they. Uh, you know, gesticulated with their, uh, their hands and they um, swore and they said, how dare I, and I broke rules and I broke orders and uh, rah, rah, rah. And it was a Warren officer, and I always remember his name, Warren officer Jovic, who stepped in front of the major, between the major and I, and he said, that's enough, sir, that's enough. And from that day on, I remembered to myself, I will always stand up for someone who is in a situation where they're getting um, intimidated and, and, uh, and I, I want, I'd love to find him and thank him for that because that was a really Turning huge. point for you. It was, yeah. yeah. So there were, there were men who made my life hell, but there were men who were just fantastic as well.
4: In 1990, uh, one of my friends suffered a misadventure on descent to a drop zone in Sabah. So he, uh, Jonesy, his name was, we'll leave it at Jonesy, Mm -hmm. uh, come out and for some reason, uh, whether the static line was around his neck or his neck hit the step on the way out, um, massive trauma. So quadriplegic, under canopy, looked across after all round observation, which means I'm swinging my legs left to right and having a look around all the other paratroopers around me. Yep. Just noticed he was slumped under canopy without his helmet on. So I steered as hard as I could to get to Jonesy with another mate of mine because we were yelling to each other on the canopy that he's not in a good way and we landed on the drop zone. Uh, he, his neck was actually out to where his ears were and he couldn't breathe. So we tried all resuscitation techniques to get air in there and we couldn't and the doctor eventually turned up. It was an emergency tracheotomy on the drop zone. And then um, I was Jonesy's breath. So I just kept him going by breathing through the tube. And, uh, yeah, they got him in the hospital. Jones survived. As far as I know, he's still out there somewhere. He's still kicking, uh, doing what he's doing, which is fantastic. Mm. Yeah. Um, but right, everything. That's, a, that's an incredible story. It's, it's a great story. Yeah, it yeah. just it just shapes to who you are and how you can respond to different situations um, and how you deal with pressure as well in a short space of time.
0: And it's kind of illustrates what you are saying before. It's like in the military, you're trained to be able to deal with a situation like that and, and almost, you know, in this... You know healthily disassociated state where you're just in the moment you're not you're not freaking you're not flapping um, yeah and that's perfect for that situation and it's just I guess the question is in the years that come after that and the decades that come after that so like what's the what's the effect of all the
4: accumulation of these sorts
0: of of incidences
4: on us all definitely definitely um that it will it, it there's always, I'll call it residue. There's a little bit of residue there from all these things that you need to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but you, you will apply the lessons you've already learned, especially during transition as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there were rough times, don't get me wrong, mm-hmm. that I thought, what am I doing? It's crazy. I've, I've, I've thrown out 30 resumes and I've only got two hits. Right. And it's like, wow, I've spent money and time and effort getting everything prepared, rebranding, even, even getting business photos made with my hand on my chin with a suit on. And, you know, nice hair and everything else going, hey, look at me, I'm a million dollars. Yeah, But uh, selling yourself to transition out of the military, is, it's difficult, it's hard, it's not easy. You, the biggest way you sell yourself is by how you present to people.
0: And I think anyone listening to this would certainly benefit from, you know, how you got through that, because you're standing here today, you're coming on programs, you know, you you are dealing with a lot of stuff in your life right now that I know from our, you know, chats um, offline, but... Um, You know, you mentioned you went and got some coaching, you went and did some other things because some other kind of traditional things weren't working. Um, How did you get through the darkest times?
5: Um, Well, at the beginning, it was the alcohol, unfortunately, with the substance abuse, which most of us do. Um, What I found with, uh, I guess, the the, the coaching, the NLP sort of stuff, it it resonated more with me. It it was more about the understanding of how we do things and why we do things. And I guess the biggest challenge I had was I didn't understand what was going on. You know, the time I'd spend a bit of time in hospital with it. Um, and I guess it's it's really hard to understand when things are happening and just going, well, why is it happening? You know, why am I doing this? Why mm. am I doing that? Yep. And, you know, it's those things that impact your life so much. And um, I guess in the darker times, unfortunately, it was the alcohol. Mm. Um, and until I hit a, a certain point where things went really bad with alcohol and that was one of those moments where I stopped and thought, I've got to do something different here. Um, So I found quite often for most of the time I was alone and really having to sort of pull myself out of nearly every day to keep myself going. Mm. Um, And I guess one of the things I've found that has kept me sane or whatever (laughs) you want to put on it, um, for me is I grew up bodyboarding, surfing, and for me, the ocean is my place. Yeah, right. Um,
0: How cool is that? Well, perfect place. Yeah. <laughs> You're <laughs> no. not, not complaining at all. Rainbow <laughs> Bay and the Gold Coast, perfect place to be. Yeah. yeah.
5: Um, it was, I guess it's, for most people, that have got pity understand that the mind just doesn't stop. It's just, it's continually, there's something going on, something going on. And um, for me, the ocean is what, I guess, calms my mind. Um, I tried all the meditation and, you know, I said, do this breathing and counter this and yoga positions. But for me... None of those really worked. And I guess now my understanding is meditation for everyone is different. Everyone needs to find what's their version, whether that's a walk along the beach. For me, it's being in the ocean and surfing. Um, And I guess a lot of the clinical courses I did, they were all like meditate, meditate, meditate. And it just just did not work for me. So I spent a lot of time in the dark, I suppose. Yeah. Um, To sort of answer your question there, there was no real way of pulling myself out of the dark and it's only been the last few years where i've really got back into the, the surfing and um i guess sort of started to center myself again yeah i think you're on the money there you've got to find what's meditative for yeah. you and if it's
0: the counting and the breathing the yoga is not it maybe it will be it later down the path once you mm. sort of got out of the worst times but if surfing's it for you sweet yeah. archery is it for you sweet if hiking's it for you yeah. yeah nice so yeah i i really struggled um
6: Come back from Timor, um, I I struggled to live in Australia. Uh, I struggled to sleep. I remember I was, I was living in the lines and I was sleeping on my floor. Um, I was drinking a lot and um, I remember there was a time, we were, supposed, we were training to go back to Timor in 2002 mm-hmm. and I was um, – I don't know, something just hit me like I, I, I really wanted to go back, but I wasn't sure I was I was ready to go back and I and I certainly didn't like living in Australia. So I actually ended up going AWOL and Really? And I was living on the streets in Papua New Guinea.
0: Wow. I did not know that. Okay.
6: <laughs> There's a left ball right there. <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. So you went AWOL prior to the two thousand and two trip? I did. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, right, yeah, like a week before. Right.
6: Yeah. And um so I went and lived in PNG on the, on the streets for about six weeks okay. and um, realised that the army had cut my pay off, so I had no money. Um, after about six weeks, I, I realised I, I can't keep doing this, so I went back to Australia and <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just pretty much walked, walked straight into my unit and said, hey, I'm back. I'm back. <laughs> and they were pretty cool, actually. They were pretty cool. They welcomed me back and they were, they, I think they were just worried about me. Yeah. Um, they probably had realised I'd, I'd been struggling a bit. And yep. Yep. Um, they'd contacted my brother who was in 3 area, mm, mm. Yeah. So it was, um, got into a little bit of trouble for it. Yeah. What was the fallout of that? Yeah. So I ended up um, being charged and uh, sent to the Defence Force Correctional Centre for 21 oh, days. Of course. Um, it place. Which is, yeah, it was an amazing place to go. <laughs> <laughs> I
0: bet. And uh, it's it's funny, this is typical military type stuff. So I, I only know Dutchie as Dutchy, so I actually don't even, can't remember what his first name is. What's your brother's first Paul. name? Paul. Paul. Okay, yeah. So for those who are listening who aren't aware, so Paul DeGelder was uh, the individual involved in the um, uh, the bull shark attack in Sydney Harbour he lost an arm and a leg. Is that right? Yes. Yes. So that, that happened after Dutchy left three R hour and uh, was applying to be a clearance diver. So that is your brother. That's correct. Yeah, and he's off living all around the world doing crazy stuff.
6: Yeah. So now he's um, he's living in LA,
0: living the life, yeah. um, diving with sharks. <laughs> <laughs> he takes us what's slept- the statistical probability of being bitten twice, right?
6: <laughs> yeah, I know. I chat with him all the time, and he tells me he goes, "My my two worst fears were." public speaking and diving with sharks. Um, and that's what he does now, public speaking and diving <laughs> with sharks. <laughs> so
0: <laughs> yeah. he does that as like a – his own yeah, business? So, or?
6: Yeah, so he's yeah. the um, – he was – I think he's employed with Discovery Channel, I think, oh, okay. who do Shark Week. So he's the host wow. of Shark Week now. Um, but he does um, some other documentaries with Discovery Channel where he takes out um, celebrities – uh, and th- I think they normally go out to the Bahamas, and he takes some diamond sharks. So he's taken Ronda Rousey out there. Uh, he's taken Mike Tyson out there. Wow.
0: Um, a few other ones,
6: but yeah, he's
0: uh, it's going well. Uh, yeah, yeah. And when they see that, uh, see his uh, his condition and hear his story, none of them get turned off the idea of some English sharks. No. Um,
6: well, yeah. Well, Mike Tyson <laughs> actually, he threatened to kill everyone on the boat, but. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Okay, but um, no, they just they just think um, they
0: see how confident he is yep. at what he does, and it makes them feel at ease. That's an incredible story. Yeah. That's a really cool like transition from you know a disaster, really. Yeah, and yeah, obviously cool. an end of a military career. I assume I can't recall the story in detail whether he was removed from the Navy immediately or not but clearly not going to have a long term future in the defence force and he's gone off and done this how cool is that
6: yeah I think it it just shows like um, you can go through some really tough times yep and um, if you set yourself um, set yourself up with a positive mind frame and surround yourself with good people and do a lot of research Mm. you can actually uh, improve your Mm. life your life more than what it was before that bad experience yeah
0: and what was the Effect on you when that happened? Obviously, it would have been a, a shock to the to Gilder family, as it was to
6: yeah. You know. Yeah. So, um, when that happened, I had actually just uh, done my aptitude test to become a clearance diver. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, my parents weren't uh, too ecstatic with that, so you know, just for their sanity, I I, I pulled back and sure. I stayed in the army. <laughs> <laughs> By that time, I had caught transferred and I become a petroleum operator, which was. A much easier job. Yeah, and
0: no sharks around. No sharks. Controlling depots. So that's a, that's a good way to go. Nice one. Coming down with Tammy Ritchie. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you so much, Michael, for being here.
0: Yeah, yeah you're most welcome. It's a, it's a pleasure to keep coming back myself. And you and I have met before uh, in the Tony Robbins environment, actually. We, um, we're crewing. What was it, 20, 2018, 2019 up in Cairns? So it's a, yeah. it's a small world. I didn't actually know that you were ex-Defence and you didn't know I was either. How about that? No. Yeah. <laughs> so there you go. But uh, what I've been doing with most folks is um, just getting uh, them to tell a little bit about their military backgrounds, so the listeners sort of know who they're talking to and all that kind of cool stuff. So, yeah. Yeah.
1: So, yeah, I served, um, joined the Air Force in 1990, served for 17 years Mm -hmm. as an aircraft maintenance engineer. I was one of the first female engineers, um, so got used to working with a lot of men.
7: Very
0: male-dominant environment, I imagine. Yes. Yep. 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 Nice one. And in terms of postings and deployments and things like that?
1: Yeah, so I spent a lot of time um, at Amberley and also Richmond Air Force Base. I yep. met my husband on the tarmac at 486 Squadron okay. um, when we were maintaining um, the Hercules aircraft. So that was really exciting. What was his role? Um, so he was an aircraft maintenance engineer as well. As well. Okay, yeah, yep, yep. so um, so that's pretty cool. And then, yeah, had some amazing opportunities um, most women would never have the opportunity to do. And it's really just help develop the person that I am I suppose like one of the opportunities um, a couple I'll talk about um, combat survival so I got to do that in Townsville with um, the uh, Navy clearance divers so the tough guys you know and so and that was about three weeks where we learn in a classroom how to survive in all the different environments and then we're immersed in all the environments as well and so the course average weight loss (coughs) sorry course average weight loss was about 15 kilos so These guys were massive, you know, really muscular. Yeah, yeah. And um, having to learn to survive and actually being in the jungle on your own, literally Mm. on your own when you're surviving on your own, you don't have – anyone there with you, mm. and you can hear all the noises of the animals and stuff like that in the background. It's quite frightening.
0: Noise of your stomach, grumbling. Yeah, yeah,
1: <laughs> and then having to, you know, um, know what berries to eat, how to yep. how to get water and all those kinds of things, which has been pretty amazing. And, you know, obviously we'd come back together. Um, so I remember one of the times um, being in the desert phase and being taught how to actually gut an animal. <laughs> and <laughs> we had this... Um, A goat that we were feeding the whole time, and it was our pet battening it up, yeah. And so, again, a lot of the times in my career, it was always seems to be me as the only female being with all the guys. And so, you know, we had this goat and we're patting this goat, petting this goat, had no idea that we were going to have to learn how to (sighs) cut off the head of this goat and gut it. And that was like my responsibility, they got me to do so, okay, pretty, yeah, pretty. awful I suppose but yeah. it was like um, ne- you know necessary because when you let's face it when you're surviving in the jungle
0: you can do what you do
1: yeah or yeah. out in the ocean you know being in a 10man um, raft with uh, there's 11 so, 11 of us on a 10man raft and <laughs> like literally surviving so it was pretty yeah. awesome. Then I got to do the Kokoda Trail as well. So being an engineer, I looked after the um, Caribou aircraft as well. Yep. And so the Army and the SAS used to utilise those to fly around in different deployments and stuff. And so mm-hmm. um, as a thank you, they went past my office one day and said, look, we'd really love for you to come with us on this um, opportunity of a lifetime to do the Kokoda Trail. And they were expecting me to say no. Um, I straight away called my husband. And at that stage, we had two little girls And um, they would be going to childcare and my husband was on deployment himself, so he wasn't there. I was at home looking after the girls. And he's like, Tam, you have to go. And I'm like, but the day that we're flying out, you're flying back on a military aircraft from Darwin. And he's like, look, we'll sort it out, just go. So I had full support from him, which was really awesome. Yeah. And because he was away and I only had two weeks' notice, I was very fit at the time as well. Um, But, you know, working full-time and then also studying full-time as a teacher in Mm -hmm. the evenings, looking raising the two girls, doing it all on my own, I didn't have the chance to even think about Mm -hmm. what I was doing, which was really awesome. It wasn't until I was on the plane on the caribou that... (laughs) So I'm like a gravel truck in the sky, go yeah. forward, um, you know, go so slow. Then I was like, oh my goodness. And my monkey brain was like kicking in, trying to create so many stories. Like, oh, what are you doing? You're with the toughest guys in the world. Because there was me and 144 SAS soldiers. And that's it. Maybe I think there was another three Air Force guys. But again, being the only female. So my brain was like, oh, my goodness, and you've got to carry a 25-kilo pack? You know, that wasn't much – that was half my body weight I'm having to carry. Mm -hmm. And so my brain's like, oh, my goodness, what's going to happen? It wasn't even if. It was so definite. It was like, what's Mm going to happen when you go over on your ankle? what are you going to do then and this the story just got more and more involved and more layers of helicopters coming to get me and all these kinds of things right so day one we started marching the guys started pack marching they took off and um left me for dust in in the beginning and i'm like oh my goodness right now you're really in deep you know what are you gonna do you're the only female you've got to pull in deep for for all the girls that are out there. You can't give up. You can't be weak. So as the day passed, um, people started peeling off, which was awesome because as I peeled off, it gave me the strength to know, hey, I can possibly do this. You know, the mindset was just so incredible and so pinnacle in this moment to go through. But... I was also so clear on what I was saying and our thoughts lead to feelings lead to actions lead to results. So those thoughts that I had on the plane, the whole stories, day four came along, day four I went over on my pack and all you could hear is in my ankle. My ankle was just so swollen and sore and I was like, oh, good one. You just put it out there, you knew it was going to happen and you brought it to your attention Mm. and you actually manifested what you put out there. Yeah. So then I was like, oh, my goodness, okay, rest, ice, compression, elevation. Rest, highly unlikely with all these soldiers. Mm -hmm. Ice, don't have any ice. We're actually in the jungle. Mm -hmm. Compression, well, I guess I can leave my shoe on, leave my boot on, and I'll elevate for a little while. And then I had to dig deep. And the thing that got me through was not the whole reality of the situation, the chaos, the perturbation, but it was the mindset that went, you can do this, Mm. Yeah, so I had to set my outcome, send the energy on the outcome that I desire, and that was crossing that finish line, which was such a big deal, you know, having this big task ahead of me, being mm. injured, and that's exactly what I did, and that's exactly what I achieved. So when I crossed that finish line, I rang my husband, like on the radio, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, I can't believe it. I've completed this. It's one of the hardest walks in the world. And he's like, far out, Tam, I knew you'd do that. Of course you'd do that. And I was like, I was, you know, doubting myself all The whole way. Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's just the power of, you know, like so many incredible experiences that I got to do again that, you know, a lot of women didn't get to do. Like I'd be flying on Iroquois aircraft, flying, um, driving around the tarmac with army tanks and stuff like that (laughs) and doing all these incredible things. Um, But it was mindset that kind of pushed me through. And a lot of the things, as I said, that I learned from the Kokoda Trail that time… Yeah um changed my life forever because I realised just how strong I was mm. and the power of the mindset. And that was way back, you know, I don't know how many years ago, but I've been out for now fift- 15 years. Yeah, yeah. So it was, yeah. You a all wanted. of
0: that sort of stuff for you, what you do now with your coaching and your business. That yeah, sort of absolutely. Tell us a little bit um, about that just quickly.
1: Yeah, so um, I came to the end of my career. I was 17 years. Mm. And during that time, I I guess I was a little bit unfulfilled with that career. Um, I didn't know what was next. And I knew that we'd had our last child and leading up to when I was pregnant with that child, you know, I was still working full-time, studying as well. And I'm a type A personality. I'll mm. throw in as much in the day as you can. But that's not always the best solution because I also got sick as well. Yep. Um, during my career, I also fell off an aircraft um, work stand and broke my back and had to learn how to walk again. So I've had to overcome all that. Wow. And I was diagnosed also with two autoimmune diseases. So, with the back injury, um, my services were no longer going to be required. Yep. So, I was facing that medical discharge. had no idea what I was going to do. I'm skilled engineer. Mm. You know, it was had no idea. And then I was like, oh, can I go back? So, the 12 months when I had off on maternity leave, I made the decision – once in my life I'm going to stop, I'm going to breathe, I'm going to take my shoes off, I'm mm. going to create the necessary space that is needed. I had no idea why I was doing it, mm. no idea why I'd meditate, but I needed it and little did I know why. So towards the end of my career when I was due to go back and, um, and my, ho- my whole soul was telling me you can't go back, you go back, you're going to be there until mm. you're 65, yep. you know, Maybe they could retrain me, or I'm not sure. But I was like, it was no longer fulfilling me. I knew there was more. I had no idea what.
7: Sure. So let's talk... Can we talk about that now? Because mm-hmm. you, you said to me that you actually came to a point of accept, acceptance. Like, there, there is a, like a, a, a therapy called acceptance therapy, you know? So you came to a point of acceptance, and you realised that you had done your best, that you had behaved honourably. Was that how you dealt with this, what we would call, moral injury? Or is that how you... That's that, how I dealt it with was, it over there. Yeah. But in coming back, I still was carrying, you know, I, I heard you say the other day, you can come home from the war and bring the war with you. Mm. And it's so true. Um, so I, I came back and I, I, I realised I'd helped stuff up a country. I mean, there's... The Vietnamese are a gentle, loving people and left on their own, there would not have, there would have been a civil war but it wouldn't have been too bad because one side would have said, OK, you win, let's go back to the shops. Um, so they're very gentle people and it was us who, who forced them into killing each other and I think the, the number of times you heard the Americans say, oh, the Vietnamese, they're no good as soldiers. What they're really saying is they don't kill each other as fast as we could and that is really, really immoral. And the other immorality is you've got people my age at the time who say, let's go to war. You know, Ho Chi Minh, who was a fabulous leader, but a, uh, a warmonger and General Jap and those guys. And over here you've got Bob Menzies and incredible intellectuals like that, and What they do is they recruit young men and they train them up and they tell them who the enemy is and what we're going to do about it and push them closer and closer together until they're facing each other, as in my case. And in facing each other, they are told, well, you better kill the other guy because he's going to kill you. So then you've got got 18-year-old men, which is normally the cream of that society because the Army, Navy, Air Force love to take the cream. Train them up, make them enthusiastic, and send them out where they're going to be in dire peril. And if that's not immoral, I don't know what is. So Australia's done some good things. And I think Timor is a really good thing. I think Australia getting involved there was just so right. And getting involved in Iraq was about a wheat deal with America. Getting involved in Iran was about, you know, sort of. Seeking out allies in case China got too too powerful, which they're now doing, and we don't have the ally. So we've got all these different immoralities occurring, and you've got to figure out how you're going to deal with it. Well, my answer was I will take something and do something about it. So I got involved with the Vietnamese refugees and uh, I'm a, a reasonably astute businessman and I could see where you only had to drive through lower ex- socio-economic um, uh, suburbs, and you see a you know car wreck and a bit of this and a bit of that, and then a, an impeccable garden with a vegetable garden down the back, and you just say Vietnamese, and you know, they, they were great gardeners. So I set up a number of businesses for corporations who've got you know sort of a, a plant with plant as in a mill with gardens and lawns around the outside and I would approach them and say, look, there's nothing in this for me, but I'm looking to for contracts to do gardens. And they say, all right, maybe we'll give you, give you a must trial. And they're still working there mm-hmm. 20 years later. Mm-hmm. So I got involved with that and then I ended up being very good friends to the point that they've adopted me uh, with a couple of Vietnamese families. And I found out later that when the Cambodians started arriving, Uh, there's a bit of a wave of Cambodians, these Vietnamese all got together to help the Cambodians settle in. And I thought, you know, that's a sort of a pass it forward type thing. But I felt I'd done something to get back at the, the the immorality of us encouraging uh, other people to fight.
0: Thank you for listening to our podcast. We trust it's been valuable. If you've got any comments or questions, feel free to reach out to us at support at veteranscare.com.au.